So tonight we look at the branch. Now, if you have an excellent memory, you remember that I've preached on this before, but I used another book. I think the sermon came from Micah when we went through the 12 prophets, we went through the minor prophets. So uh, tonight we're going to look at the subject of the branch, who he is, and what Isaiah 11 has to say. And as we go through these texts, I hope that you will give some insight as far as, you know, this is what I like about Isaiah. This is how it's useful in my life as far as application. That definitely helps me. Um, you know, when I read a lot of times, I'm thinking about usefulness and as far as our relationship to God and relationship to others. And what stands out to me about the book of Isaiah is that it is an, a wonderful book for sharing the gospel and evangelizing with others. And while I'm on that as well, if you want me to preach or speak on a certain subject, just mention it to me. And it'll buzz around in my head, and it'll come out one day. Um, if you really want me to preach it, you give me a section of Scripture. You say, this subject we need. This is why. Here's the Scripture. Do it. And most likely within a month, you're going to hear a sermon on it or something on it. Um, it will be addressed. Tonight we look at Isaiah chapter 11. This will be the part of exposition, but I'm going to pull in other verses that has led up to Isaiah 11, talking about this man who is the branch and this prop, these prophecies about this, this individual who is coming. So I, I don't understand a lot of the confusion that went on in Jesus' time about who the Messiah is and what he would be like. Now, I think some of them thought there was two different messiahs that were coming. I can, you know, that, that would be hard to think of, but maybe I could understand a little bit better from that point of view. I just, I don't, I don't get this. I, I don't get why people would miss the fact that here are these descriptions, and when someone comes in history who is unlike any other, who matches these descriptions, I can't help but think, okay, that's, he must be the Messiah. He must be the Christ. It should be very clear. So that's some of the things we're going to be looking at this evening. That's another reason why Isaiah is called the fifth gospel because there's so many prophecies, predictions, and mentions of the coming Messiah, the suffering servant of God. So what are the scriptures that the apostles taught so believers in God would believe that Jesus was the Christ? Now you might be thinking those two go hand in hand, and today it usually does. In America, someone says they believe in God, usually they say Jesus is the Christ, he is the Son of God, they recognize that and they believe it. And sometimes it only it stops there. Maybe it doesn't go further than what it should. Now, there are some people today who claim to be Christians that believe that Jesus resurrected from the dead. Whereas the Bible says if you don't believe that, you're not a Christian. So they're at odds with the, what the Bible says. The scriptures we look at tonight, these are the things that the apostles would have taught. This is what Paul and Peter and, and Barnabas and Apollos and those who are going throughout the world are teaching the gospel to others. What are they using? What Bible are they using? They're going to heavily rely on the book of Isaiah. We know that. You read Acts chapter 8, and you remember Philip, the evangelist, and he sees the Ethiopian eunuch riding on his chariot going down the road. Very conveniently, he's reading from that passage that is so easy to preach the gospel from because it has the gospel in it that is written hundreds of years before Jesus came, and that's from Isaiah 53. And so Philip goes and joins the chariot and is able to teach him from that. We see Isaiah throughout the New Testament being taught, and tonight we're going to be reminded of that. And I think the application comes down to this. You have people that you know who are very devout, religious. Um, maybe, maybe they're not that religious. Maybe they're just generic believers in God and Jesus. 
Maybe they have, they, they post scriptures up, maybe they don't. Maybe they read a lot or they don't. But those, from whatever spectrum in there, from believing in God to the one who is a devout follower and a Bible reader in another church, you can study with them. And when we come to the question of, for instance, evangelism, and I've, we've talked about this before, who do you evangelize? And it seems like one of the ways that you can make an excuse to not evangelize to anybody is to say, well, this person already knows their Bible. Doesn't, even if they're going to that church, they read their Bible. They probably know their Bible better than me. It's really not going to help me to share the gospel with them when I recognize they're missing some points. Now, I want to bring this up as well. In our Bible class this morning, we got into Acts chapter 18. And in the end of Acts chapter 18, there was a guy named Apollos. Remember him? And he was going around, and it said he was competent in the Scriptures and teaching that Jesus was the Christ. And then he taught people the baptism of John, not the baptism of Jesus. And so Priscilla and Aquila, hearing him preaching in the synagogue, pulled him inside and said, listen, you got it all right except for this point. And they taught him, them, him the way more accurately. And that tells me something. If you know it all and you're really intelligent, you're a great preacher and you're competent in the Scriptures, then you're wrong in one area. And this goes for all preachers to be humble about this because most likely you're going to be wrong in something. And somebody, a couple, a loving couple, pulls you aside and says, listen, this is the more accurate way. What should you do? You should listen to him like Apollos did. And he converted and he changed. So when we start looking at we start making up excuses about, oh, I can't evangelize. And that, per that person already knows so much of the Bible. No, they might need to know it more accurately. They need to hear the gospel. They need to hear the truth. Uh, other examples, Acts chapter 10 with Cornelius, a man who gives to the poor. He fears God. He does all these great things. Uh, he, he, God hears his prayers, but he wasn't saved yet. He needed to hear the gospel. And then we have a number of other people. We might, if we were Paul and we came to the city of Athens and saw all the idols there, would we have defended and presented the gospel there in the marketplace? Would we have stood up in the Areopagus and said, let me tell you about the unknown God? Or would we have said, no, these people are so profane, so disturbed, so foreign and, and separated from the true God and any knowledge of who he is, it's not worth my time to speak to them. And so, and I've heard that. I've heard that in our brotherhood from one extreme to the other. Well, I didn't want to teach this person because they, they already got the Bible. They can read it for themselves. Well, I didn't want to teach this person because, well, they're a militant atheist. They're an agnostic. They're staunch about it. I don't need to talk to them. So we can make excuses all day. But when we look at who we need to share the gospel with, we need to open our eyes. If they're not in the church, if they're not faithfully in the church, share the gospel with them. If they're not in the church of Christ that we read about in the scriptures, you go teach them. If they're in the church of Christ, you've got somebody you need to study with anyways. There's no reason for us not to be looking toward everybody. There's no reason to be making any, uh, those excuses. Uh, we need to be very, very careful about that. I hope these passages tonight help you with that. We're going to begin with Isaiah chapter 11, and we're going to read here and draw some observations from verses 1 through 10 about the rod or the shoot that shoots up from Jesse. Uh, who is Jesse? Jesse is the father of David. And so when we have this, we have a reference to David's father. The implication there is there is a king coming. And the king here, as we're going to read a little bit further, is going to be called the branch. And we're going to read some descriptions about the king, the Messiah, the Son of God. Now, the idea of the Son of God and Messiah, 
Those terms come from Psalm 2. That's, those are the, that's the first prophecy of the anointed Son of God, the Messiah, the King who would come after David. And that's where that um, teaching comes from. So let's go to Isaiah 11. And so Isaiah is clearly, clearly building on these things, these prophecies that people are knowing. There's a Messiah coming. There's a great King coming. And he has a lot to say about this. So let's read 1 through 10. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the Spirit of the Lord, the Spirit of Jehovah, will rest upon him. The Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight will be in the fear of the Lord, and he shall judge by what he shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide the equity and, so, and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fatted calf together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, the lion shall eat straw like the ox, the nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the wean child shall put his hand into the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And in that day the root of Jesse who shall stand as a signal for the peoples of him shall the nations inquire and his resting place shall be glorious. You read some of that and some of it's probably appear to be a little bit puzzling. But as we start thinking about it, there's some things that are very, very clear about who this branch is, who this king is going to be. And all these things just encourage me. When I stand and I, I get to read Isaiah and I know where this text is coming from, and I get to read these things about Jesus in, in more detail. They help bring out the things in the gospel, things I would not often think about Christ in these ways. So helpful. So these are the things we see. Again, from Jesse, the father of David, will come one who is the branch. And he's going to bear fruits. He's going to do great things. The Spirit of the Lord will rest upon him. You, you know that from the Bible, that when Jesus was baptized, the Holy Spirit ascended upon him, descended upon him. Um. We see the Spirit here. What does that mean that the Spirit's going to sit upon them? Well, the Scripture there tells us. you got a little bit of parallelism. What's going to happen? Well, the Spirit of God is upon Him. The Holy Spirit is upon Him. He's anointed in this way. He's anointed unlike any other. That, that's what makes Him the Messiah. That's what Messiah means. It means one who is anointed. And so the Spirit is upon Him in what way? So that He has God's wisdom. He has God's understanding. He has God's counsel and might and knowledge. And His reverence is with Him. He reveres God. That is the beginning of wisdom. That's what Solomon said in Proverbs 1 and verse 7. So these amazing things stand out about this man. This wise man, this king, will be a just judge. He will judge without partiality. He will bring about equity for the meek. He will be just toward the poor. And this is one that's striking to me right here that we read about in 11 verse 4. It says, The man will strike and kill the wicked by the words of his mouth. 
Now Jesus will come on judgment day with his mighty angels and they will gather up the wicked and cast them into hell. Jesus said that. He taught that repeatedly. But as far as his action coming to this world, it was the words that he spoke were a sword by which he struck, by which he slew the wicked, by which he said he was able to reveal what was good and evil. This is how the Messiah would come. So when people are expecting, the Jews are expecting a Messiah who's going to start a physical kingdom and take up a literal sword. That's not what I'm reading about here in Isaiah. I'm reading about a man who is anointed in a different way, who comes with the Spirit of God, who is the Messiah, who is God, as we're going to see. He will strike and kill the wicked by the words of his mouth. In other words, he's going to speak truth and justice and what is right, and anybody who contradicts that is going to be judged. We're going to come across this again later in Isaiah chapter 49. Well, one place it stands out to me is in Revelation 1 and verse 16 and chapter 19 and verse 15 when Christ comes. For instance, Revelation 19 and verse 15 tells us about the battle of Armageddon. The battle of Armageddon. And a lot of people think, oh, this is it's, it's going to be a physical event with Christ coming on an actual white horse. But it says there that a sword comes from his mouth by which he speaks that he speaks about judgment and what we see in this world and in the next is that whatever you do now you're going to come into judgment and it's going to be according to to the words of christ jesus said that in john chapter 12 verses 47 and 48 he said i came not to judge the world he says but there's one thing that will judge the world my words will judge the world the words of christ so when christ comes the Messiah, the king that they've been promised, he comes as a king in a different way. He, be, he comes in a way in which his words will bring judgment on humanity. We see this as well, the description of this man is that he is righteous and faithful in every way. He will bring peace with him. Now Jesus promises peace in his great invitation. Matthew chapter 11, he says, All that come to me, I will give you rest. But he also says, I did not come to bring peace, that is, in, in the families. He said, I came to bring a sword. And that, that would be a reference to, here he is promising peace in one sense, but he's also bringing the sword, the word of God, which will even separate um, the father and son, a mother and daughter, what they believe in. So he will bring peace on the earth, and the earth will come to be full of the knowledge of the Lord. And I think the big question is, when I'm reading through this, I'm seeing the knowledge of the Lord coming throughout. I'm seeing this peace, and the peace is symbolized with the lion and the lamb being able to lay down together. Is that a literal event? Maybe in the new earth it is, but as far as I see, it is symbolic, especially within the church and within the kingdom, the kingdom that Christ established and within the church and its greater fulfillment. When I read further in the book of Isaiah, we're going to get there. We'll look at the subject, the new heavens and new earth. Um, there's no exclusion of animals or any more of God's creation there. They're there as well. And so there's going to be a time of peace. And some have taken this symbolism to mean that it's going to be literal. I have no problem with that. At the same time, I don't want to close my mind off at all that the peace he's referencing here comes by the words of Christ and the comfort and the rest that he gives to us. And that includes now in the church and in the, and in the fullness of the eternal kingdom. So we're a part of the kingdom now, but we're going to have these promises then as well. I hope that makes sense. So the nations will want to know him as well. We read that. Verse 10, it says he'll be a signal to the world, a signal to the nations. 
and the nations will come to him. Now, we've got this, and I, st- I decided to begin with Isaiah 11 because it seems to be putting a lot of things together that Isaiah is mentioning that the Lord is revealing. In the context of the things that are happening to Israel and to Judah. And it happens, a lot of this, Isaiah is speaking in the time of King Ahaz. And King Ahaz is, he's a foolish king. He worships idols. He makes excuses in the way that he responds to God. And we're going to see that in a moment. It's, it's very annoying when I read it. King Ahaz is an annoying person. He's a wicked man. He offered one of his sons as an offering into, to another god. He went and saw an altar to another god and said, I like that altar better, had one made like it, put it into the temple of God and set aside the, temple, the altar that God had prescribed and pushed it aside. This is King Ahaz. He's a foolish man and a wicked man. And we see Isaiah coming in his time. All right, so before we get back to King Ahaz, we see the one who's coming. His name is going to be Emmanuel, God with us. He'll come, and he'll come when there are no more kings ruling in Israel or Judah. And when will that be? There'll be no more kings ruling in Israel and Judah. In fact, the land will become so desolate that men will come there, hunters will come there to hunt when this specific king, Emmanuel, comes. And we're going to work up to that passage. We're coming to it. So I gave you a little bit of, of um, backstory about King Ahaz. Listen to this. And again, the Lord said to Ahaz, and Yahweh says to Ahaz, Ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be deep as Sheol or as high as heaven. And listen to what Ahaz says here. This is what annoys me about Ahaz. He could have talked to God. He could have listened to God. This is what he says. I will not ask and I will not put the Lord to the test. He knows just enough Bible to reject it. You know people like that today? Oh, I know John 3.16. know anything else. And then they twist John 3.16 and don't understand it. We can go down a list of different scriptures that people use and manipulate. Here King Ahaz barely knows what he's talking about. And he says, you know what? I don't want anything to do with Jehovah God. So I'm just going to make an excuse right here and just say something that sounds respectful. Oh, I'm not going to ask of a sign, even though God just told me to. Because I don't want to test the Lord. He's defying God. And he said, hear then, O house of David. So this is Isaiah, God speaking through him. Hear, O house of David. Hear, king. Listen, is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? So not only is Ahaz annoying in general to us, he's annoying to God. What he's doing is wearisome and foolish. And so what does God do? We have a prophecy that's mentioned in Matthew chapter 1 and verse 23 that we're very, very familiar with. Verse 14. God says, I'll give you a sign, and here's that sign. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. Well, who is this? The virgin shall conceive and bear a son. And we see when that's going to happen. It's going to happen when the kings are gone and the land has become desolate. And shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. He shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to, um, when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the boy knows how to refuse the evil 
and choose the good. And that's not saying that Jesus the Messiah at any point could not, but that he had to grow in wisdom. That's what we read in the Gospel of Luke. And the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. The land's going to be deserted. No one's going to be around. We read these prophecies. So you're looking, you, you read Isaiah 7, and you read Isaiah 2 during our readings this week. You're going to read Isaiah 4. You're going to read chapter 9, and you're going to be picking out these things. Who is he talking about? Who is Isaiah alluding to? We read this in, in Isaiah chapter 9. It begins by this, saying there's going to come a light in the land of Galilee. And this scripture is quoted in Matthew chapter 4, 12 through 16, when Jesus goes and begins preaching and ministering in Galilee. That's the land of Zebulun and Naphtali, of those tribes, the land of Galilee. And, it, and the Bible says that's where the ministry of Christ is going to be. That's kind of an interesting description. What kind of king comes like this? What kind of king comes with the sword from his mouth and does these things in this way? You know, it makes sense in the light of who Jesus is. Isaiah 9, verses 6 through 7. For unto us a child is born. A child is born. There's a light coming to Galilee. A child is born. To us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his, his shoulder. He's the king. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor. Of course, because the Spirit of God rests upon him. He has the counsel of God. He is mighty God, it says. How can Isaiah say that? That a man is going to come, the Messiah and the King, the Son of God, who will be mighty God. You can't change that. You can't alter it. That's what it says. It says he is the everlasting Father. It's always existed. He is the Prince of Peace. And then the passage says, of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. His kingdom will be the eternal kingdom. You're studying the book of Daniel. From what I understand, you've already come up on the eternal kingdom, haven't you? And you're going to see it again. So here you have another allusion to it. This is before Daniel. There's going to be a government. There's going to be a kingdom. There's going to be a king who's going to rule an everlasting kingdom. It will have no end. And on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. You know what? When I read these passages, I think, who would not want a part of this? I want this. I want to see this. I want to be a part of this kingdom. I don't want to forget these scriptures. They're amazing. They're beautiful. They're striking. They cause me to love Christ more when I read them. That's what helps me. They cause me to be more reverent before God. They cause me to humble myself. They cause me to say, I want to be a part of the church and I'm not going to miss any part of it because I want to be a part of that kingdom. I want to be under the king. Christ, the Messiah. And I don't want to take this lightly because I see how amazing it is. Another thing that stands out here, and we read a little bit about this in chapter 11, the nations will come. He will be a signal and the nations will come to him. But Isaiah already spoke about this as well in Isaiah chapter 2. And it's from there, from the mountain, from Jerusalem, that the gospel, the word of the Lord is going to go out and that the Lord himself, it says, the Lord will teach from his mountain, that's from Mount Zion, from Jerusalem. The Lord himself will teach the gospel there. It tells you where the Messiah is coming. And that not only is he going to teach in Galilee and be a light to them, he's going to teach from Jerusalem. And all the nations of the earth are going to seek him out. 
This is what we read, Isaiah 2, verses 2 through 4. Let's start in verses 2 and 3. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains. Is that literal? I can't say that it's going to be real. But in the figurative sense, it is beyond true. It is the highest of all mountains. And shall be lifted up above the hills, and all the nations shall flow to it. As far as I know, I have no Jewish blood. I've done the DNA test. I'm a Gentile. I'm a part of those nations who have, were, are flowing to Christ and to the Messiah. And I thank God for that. It says they will flow to it. Many people shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of, to the, house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. God's going to teach us from his mountain, from his house, there in Jerusalem. It says, for out of Zion, there's the mountain, shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. Now this passage is almost verbatim quote from Micah, a contemporary of Isaiah. Whether they shared notes or they just had the same guidance of the Holy Spirit, which is a simple answer, they spoke the same thing and prophesied the same thing. When will these things come to pass that the nations will come? Well, the Apostle Paul says this is not something that's going to come in, in some future great reign, okay? That it came to pass when Christ came the first time, he came as king. There are some people that say Christ came as king, his people rejected him, and he couldn't really set up his kingdom, and the church was just an accident. It's just a, a, a parenthesis, it was just a mistake, it's just a holdover, it was just temporary. Because it didn't go the way that it was planned to go. That's false teaching. And it is taught today. People teach that. No, when Christ came, he did establish his kingdom and we're a part of it. Colossians 1, 1 verse 13 tells us that. Revelation 1 verses 5 and 6 tells us that we are the kingdom of God. We're already in that kingdom. And then Paul says this in Romans 15 and verse 12 from our readings last week. And Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will come and even... He who arises to the rule of the nations, to the Gentiles, and in him will the nations, the Gentiles, will hope. They will hope. So the word of the Lord, we also see, went out from Jerusalem, didn't it? Jesus preaching it, the apostles preaching it, the gospel spreading out, even on the day of Pentecost, multiple nations throughout the world heard the gospel that day. I want you to look at this too, because we saw a little bit in chapter 11, that's in chapter 2. No more war. There will be peace. When will there be no war among the nations? Well, now in the church, we don't war against one another, despite the fact that we're made up of multiple ethnicities. We make up one nation, the nation of Christ. Now there's fulfillment of this also in the new earth to come, the new world, where there will be peace and no more war in that eternal world, in that world to come. Isaiah 2 and verse 4 says, He shall judge the nations and shall decide disputes for many peoples, and they shall beat their swords into plowshares. No more need for, for fighting, no more need for swords, and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. And when will this be? Revelation 21 tells us. The coming of the new earth at the resurrection of Christ, He's going to judge, He's going to bring about peace. There will be no more war. I look forward to that. So as I'm reading over these passages this week, and I'm getting ready for this, I'm thinking about what do we do with these things? You've heard them before. Many of us have. And it's still amazing to read them over and over and over again. 
to study them, to be reminded of them. Isaiah describes a king who will change the world. And for you to be able to change the world, you've got to change people. And that's done through the Word of God. The Word of God has not lost its power. It is still the sword, and we need to use it. As I'm thinking about this, I think about how the apostles would use these scriptures. We mentioned some of that at the very beginning. I wanted to share with you a few passages before we conclude tonight from Acts. So in Acts 17, we see this. How did the early church use these scriptures? In Acts chapter 2, you have Paul preaching, and he makes reference of Isaiah in Psalm 16 and Psalm 110 and Joel 2. And he preaches from the scriptures. We think about the Ethiopian eunuch preaching from Isaiah 53. As Christians, we need to know these passages. We need to be able to share them. This is what we read about. Now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, Paul and those who were with him, they came to Thessalonica where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in and as was his custom and on three Sabbaths days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures. He reasoned with them from the scriptures. That's what he did in Thessalonica. And he does this in Berea, too. We're going to see that in a moment. He reasons, explaining and proving that it was necessary for Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead. What passages would he go to? He would go to Psalms and he would go to Isaiah. He's teaching from these scriptures that we've been studying tonight. How does Paul have so much material? Well, the book of Isaiah, you could spend months teaching on who the Christ is. And today, we shouldn't take these things lightly. We need to study Isaiah. We need to read it. We need to know Isaiah. We need to know the Psalms. We need to know these prophecies. They only help us and encourage us. And saying this, and, and this is what they said, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. We go a little bit further, and we, we see other places where they reason from Scripture. And I love this. I talked about this in the teenage class. It seems like every town has a Berean something church even though the town's not called Berea. Why? Because the Bereans in the Bible were known for studying their Bible. This is what we read about, Acts 17, 10 through 12. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. They left Thessalonica. There was a disturbance there. And when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Notice where they always go, where they begin, with people who believe and respect the Word of God to teach them the truth. And now these Jews were more noble. They were more honest than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness. Now they just receive it and not examine it any further. No, it says examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. They were taking what was being taught to them, what was being shown from Isaiah, and they were saying, this is what the Messiah should look like. This is Jesus of Nazareth. This is the Christ that we read about in Psalms and in Isaiah and throughout the prophets. This is Jesus of Nazareth. And it stands. When you reason, you examine the Scriptures daily, see if these things are so, this is what happens. Many of them therefore believed, with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. I hope we continue to examine the Scriptures daily. We see the power in being able to study with others from these passages. Then we go back to the Old Testament. When I sit down with somebody and they don't know almost anything about the Bible, and I've done this a number of times in Jacksonville. My favorite place to start is in Isaiah. Specifically Isaiah 53, but I might jump around in Isaiah. But it's so powerful because I'm showing them, here are these prophecies and predictions that existed centuries before Jesus, saying this is the king 
the Messiah, the one who is to come. I encourage you tonight, if you know Isaiah well enough, so when we're studying and going through there, mark those scriptures, write some of them down, especially the ones about Christ. Take them to heart, know where they are, know how to use these passages. Learn how to study with a friend through Isaiah 53 or Isaiah 42, or chapter 59 or chapter 11 as we did tonight. Look for believers of God who respect the scriptures. I have friends in the church that say I won't study with somebody unless they first believe in the Bible. I both like that and don't like it. I don't want to exclude certain people from studying with them. But those who respect and know the Bible, I've heard a number of preachers saying it is so much easier to study with someone who believes in God and respects the Bible. It's true. I think we see it's true. And that example there in Acts chapter 8 with the Ethiopian eunuch, he was a great example. He's one who was reading the text. To finish tonight, I think this is a great passage to give us our invitation. Isaiah chapter 12, concluding our readings. Again, Isaiah 12 should be a part of chapter 11 as well. This is what we read in verses 3 through 6. This should be our reaction to reading these prophecies. With joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. And you will say in that day, give thanks to the Lord. Call upon His name. Make known His deeds among the peoples. Proclaim that His name is exalted. Sing praises to the Lord, for He has done gloriously. Let this be made known in all the earth. Shout and sing for joy, O inhabitant of Zion, for great in your midst is the Holy One of Israel. Tonight you, you look at that. That's how we should be responding to these scriptures. Salvation has come. Give thanks to God. Proclaim the world to all the world. Sing praises to the Lord. All these things have been done through Jesus Christ. And so we give the invitation tonight, if you believe Jesus is the Son of God, and you haven't been baptized, you need to. You need to believe and confess faith that He is the Lord, that He rose from the dead. Repent of your sins and bury that old self in baptism and rise up in the newness of life. And then you can have what Isaiah chapter 1 says, a description of having all your sins washed away. While our sins may be as scarlet, they can be white as snow. It's a beautiful passage and description of being clean from all sin. Tonight, whatever your needs are, you need prayers, you need encouragement, you need to repent openly, we encourage you to come right now. Let's sing together.